0: You are listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Amen and good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we'll begin. We'll begin in verse 25 here in just a few moments. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn there with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word and would like one, just slip up your hand. And uh, Mr. Wayne's walking down the aisle now with extra copies. He'd be glad to bring you one. There's a couple down up here in the front, Mr. Wayne. 1 Corinthians 7. And we'll begin in second in verse, uh, just a moment in verse 25. Uh, this morning... Uh, Our biblical theology class had a wonderful time tracing the magnificent storyline of scripture through the theme of the tree of life, tree planted by God who gives life to all those who draw near, that appears in Genesis 1 and resurfaces in Revelation 22, when all is made right again only through the true tree of life, which is Christ himself, Who died, went into the ground, and rose again on the the third day. The Bible is majestic. It is beautiful. It contains the cosmic story of an eternal God and what he has done to be most glorified as we are saved by his grace and satisfied in his love. But the Bible is not just the big story of God's cosmic saving love, the Bible is also at many moments very practical. The Bible can sometimes be more practical than we would like it to be. Very direct, very invasive, if you will. God's word tells us of a world in which there is no aspect of our lives that goes untouched by the light of God's sovereign rule. There is no secular, sacred divide in God's world. God looks at all that he has made, and he says, Mine. If Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again and ascended to the throne. He has authority and dominion over all things in heaven or on earth, including the details of my life. He's the one who gives me the breath. He's the one who designed my lungs. He's the one that sustains my life. And he is sovereign over even the most minute life assignments. So a couple weeks ago, we saw this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. There's only one being in all the universe who has the authority and the ability to divvy out assignments for the lives of his People. And in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, what the Apostle Paul has been doing, he's been unfolding for us a view of God's plan for relationships such as marriage, God's plan for sex, God's plan for Christian contentment in whatever life they're in in the present. And in today's text, after discussing marriage and divorce and sexual relationships and Christian contentment, Paul makes a transition Um, in verse 25, but we'll read in just a moment. He says, now concerning, and we talked about how that now concerning, that phrase is what he uses to, to change gears, to pivot. And what he changes gears to address now, and some of you have been like, finally, right? He now is addressing the singles in the room, right? We've been talking about marriage. We've been talking about divorce. He pivots now to address singleness, but in the addressing the singles in verses 25 through 40, you'll find that he's really not all that concerned about singleness. He's really more concerned about all Christians having a right perspective of their lives. And included in that is your singleness or your marriage. And so as Paul gets very practical uh, this morning let 's turn our attention to verse twenty five let 's read it 's kind of a large section of text with lots of random details uh, but let 's read it and then pray for God to grant us understanding verse twenty five now concerning the betrothed now that that word betrothed there is just virgin in the Greek, uh, but in the context, it might be talking about a virgin promised to someone already they 're not yet married but they 're perhaps in the process of getting there. So now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if, if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Now be careful on your amens throughout this paragraph. All right. If you do marry, you'll have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The, the appointed time has grown very short. From, from now on, let those who have wives live as if though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though who were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, Now, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It's not sin. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he'll do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. All right, let's, let's pray together. Father, we come to you And uh, we thank you for texts of scripture like this that really get into the weeds of what we should be prioritizing in our lives, and we thank you for this letter. But God, we pray that you would help us to read it rightly, help us to read it in its right context, help us to emphasize what Paul emphasizes. Um, God, I pray personally, just for me this morning, um, this cough has lingered with me for nearly three weeks and I pray that you would sustain my voice and help me to say true things and to direct people's eyes to you in a way that they're consumed with a vision of a God who is worth following. And so, God, be with us. Meet with us. May your presence be felt in this room as we understand more clearly uh, eternal things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed now i'm addressing the virgins is what paul essentially says those who are not yet married now concerning the betrothed i have no command from the lord but i give my judgment as one who by the lord's mercy is trustworthy so we we've seen paul do this already earlier in the chapter he quotes jesus pretty directly And here, what Paul's essentially saying is, I'm not quoting Jesus directly here. In fact, Jesus nowhere teaches on singleness. Though Jesus himself lived a single life, Jesus nowhere explicitly teaches on it. So Paul's saying, I'm not bringing commands straight from the mouth of Jesus here. But what Paul does provide is Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom according to the mercy of the Lord, who's called him to be an apostle and to speak on God's behalf. So, this is what he's got to say. Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So, if you're single, hey, stay single. If you're married, hey, stay married. But, But in view of the present distress. So, the first question that you should ask when you come to this text is, what in the world is the present distress? Um, some scholars suggest that the present distress is a particularly bad famine that would have hit Corinth in AD 51. This period would have been a period marked by crazy social upheaval, riots, perhaps the necessity of even moving out of the city and finding somewhere safer to live. And if that's the case, then Paul's saying, hey, in light of everything going on, you need to just chill out. You need to stop looking for a, for a husband, right? You need, to, you need to focus on what's going on. If that's the case, then this instruction's pretty isolated, right? I mean, to, to this moment. But I don't think we should be real quick to isolate it, and here's why. When you continue to read the paragraph, you see Paul broaden the present distress to include much more than just something happening in Corinth. So look at verse 27. And we're going to work through this paragraph a couple times, focusing on different things. Um, Look at verse actually 29 first. Verse 29. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short, again in verse 31, reiterates the point just in a different way. Uh, For the present form of this world is passing away. So so in this paragraph, notice that it's not primarily about their relationship status. The primary focus is not actually about whether you get married. You can get married, it's, it's not a sin, Paul says. It's fine, you can do that. It's not primarily about whether you should stay single. He says you can, you can stay single. There's no sin in that. In fact, well, he goes on and said there's some great benefits to that. You can do that. What's important to Paul in the paragraph is whether you're understanding your life situation through the lens of eternity or not. There's a principle here that The point is not whether you are this or whether you are that. The point is, is that the way that you perceive this or that is in light of the fact that Jesus could split open the sky tomorrow and descend and all that you thought was most important will now mean nothing. Amen. This is the truth that, that begins to come through his instruction. Truth number one is this. All Christians should pursue an eternal perspective. So he argues the point twice. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown short. The time he references is the time. The last time, the end time, the coming day where Jesus will appear with the final trumpet, the final judgment, where the only things that will matter to you will be those things of eternal consequence. The time where the worries... And concerns and accolades and priorities of the present world will be like a vapor that passes away, like wind that you are grasping for. Again in verse 31, the present form of the world is passing away. Money will pass away. Mourning will pass away. Marriage will pass away. You see, what Paul, Paul does is he's simply returning to a theme that he began earlier in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul addressed the leadership of the church with this warning. There's a way to carry out Christian ministry so that your labors will be burnt up on the last day. And there's a way to do it that your labors will exist on into eternity. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11. Paul says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone's built on the foundation survives, he'll receive reward. If anyone's work is Burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. 1 Corinthians 3 is about building the church through what will live forever. The word of the cross, growing his people to be more like Christ. Build with what matters, not your personalities or your no, own personal goals, but then in section uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, now it's about your particular life assignment. It's about not living your life primarily for institutions, arrangements, or things that are coming to an end. This is why he says, be married as if you're not married, or be single as, as if you're not. Be, uh, spend money as if, as if you're going to lose everything. I mean, don't, don't do business the world as if business of the world is, is the thing that is going to make you happy in life forever and ever and ever. There's a way to seek marriage like it's all that matters in the world. There's a way to live your married life as if joy and fulfillment in your married life is all that matters in the world. There's a way to mourn as if your present mourning is all there is. There's a way to rejoice as if your present joy is all there is. There's a way to buy and sell and deal with all that's in the world as if you'll be able to take all of that on the last day. But as Christians, we don't believe this is it. We exist in a world differently precisely because we believe this present form of the world is passing away and that it could pass away tomorrow. And that's why Paul can be so matter of fact about something that perhaps you single in the room think is the most important thing about your future. I mean, I mean when we, when we think about big decisions in life, right? Who you marry is way up there, right? I mean, you got salvation, and then in your mind, next is like marriage. And, and, and here you have the Apostle Paul talking about it, like, yeah, I mean, you can do it, and it's, it's not a sin. Or, or you can stay single, and that's not a sin either. I mean, come on, Paul, it's a big deal. Don't be so glib about whether I'm going to be by myself, Right? not married for the rest of my life? I mean, what could be more important than whether you get married or not? What could could be more important than your highest joy or your deepest sorrow or your business and your buying and your selling and provision for your family? How are you talking about this? So cavalier. Because he's viewing these institutions through the lens of eternity. I mean, I think Paul would very much approve of the poem by C.T. Studd that says this. It says this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I've heard it jokingly said that I hope Jesus doesn't come back tomorrow because I haven't gotten married yet. Sweetheart, you ain't going to (laughs) care. In fact, uh, so much of what Paul's embodying here is what Jesus um, persistently tried to drill into his disciples. What, What Jesus persistently tried to drill into his disciples was a reorientation of what they valued in the world like a reorientation of how they saw their lives in the world and how they viewed eternity, the significance of the day that Jesus will return. I mean, over and over and over, Jesus is trying to urge them to live right now in light of what will be for eternity. In fact, we'll be preaching this text to pastors in the jungle of Peru just over a week from now, and it's true for them just like it's true for us. This is Jesus' words in Matthew 24, to his disciples, and this is just repeated over and over, but this is Jesus' words, Matthew 24, 44. He says, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I sell to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to him, My master is delayed, and he begins to beat his fellow servants, eats and drinks with the drunkards. That master of that servant will come on the day that he does not expect him, at an hour he doesn't know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites, and the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, Jesus essentially says the thing that marks you as a Christian is that you live your life in light of eternity, and not for the the temporal, worldly priorities that the world tells you will bring you ultimate satisfaction. The mark of a Christian is eternal thinking, Jesus says. So let me, let me ask you, let me just pause now. we got, we make some application. How eternally minded are you, right? I mean, if the sky were to split open this afternoon and Jesus were to descend to right all wrongs, to judge the world, to welcome us into his arms forever, would you be glad to see him? as you think, and sleepily wasting away all the gifts of grace he gave you to steward with this little bitty bit of time you have in this life. As Christians, we put everything in our lives in proper eternal perspective. Our buying, our selling, our rejoicing, our mourning, our marriage, our singleness, It doesn't mean that we don't participate in any of those things. We very much do for the glory of God. But we participate in those things differently than the rest of the world does. We do so within one sort of all-consuming passion that Paul advocates for here, and it's an undivided devotion to our Lord. Look Look at how he elaborates. Look at verse 32. No, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote promote good order. And here's the the point, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Truth number two, principle for all of us, all Christians should pursue an undivided devotion to the Lord. Again, the, the point in the paragraph is not whether you marry or not. The point is whether you secure an undivided devotion to the Lord or not. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And and we have a way of putting God into a box and categorizing him to particular spheres of life, particular places, particular moments. And we have a way of dividing our devotion between God and then our devotion to everything else. And our tendency in doing so is is not toward worship of the one true God. It's toward idolatry. We have this God that we worship on Sundays in this way, in this place. And then we take the good gifts from God in our lives and we just turn them into God's. We take good things, we make them ultimate things, things that we live for, things that we'll die without, things that our life will have no meaning if we do not have this thing. Your relationship status can be a false god to you, that you serve with every bit of your mental energy. Your children can be a false god to you. Your business endeavors can be a false god to you. They're not intrinsically evil things, but they can stoke the fires of an evil heart toward idolatry, the worship of something you think will serve you, rather than your worship of the one true God. You can give yourself to those things and then simply look to God to bless what the little g god you actually desire most how much of our relationship with God is about trying to get God to give us the true God we really want, aka that relationship or that job or that particular kind of life that the world has told us we will be miserable without. A good way to determine whether your devotion is divided is to consider what Paul references over and over again, to consider the depths of your anxieties. Notice the repetition of the word anxious here, right? Look back at verses 32 through 35 again. If you want to be free from anxieties, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Paul says the danger of getting married is that you open yourself up to a bunch of worldly anxieties. Your anxieties and concerns and worries may signal to where your deepest devotions are. There will be new elements in your life that you now can devote yourself to other than the one true God. So if you want to assess your affections, Paul says, essentially take a good look at your thought life. What anxieties dominate your thoughts? What are you most concerned about in your life? Are you anxious for the people in your life that do not know Jesus? Or are you more anxious that this business deal will go through? Are you anxious about the two billion people who've never heard the name of Jesus or about the people in our own country who do not know where they can go or what church they can go to to hear the Bible faithfully preached People who've never experienced the gift of the local church or the sweet security of eternal life? Are you anxious to be Christ-like, full of the Spirit? Are you anxious to, be, to grow old and to be one of those men or women, saints in the Lord, like, like a tree planted by streams of water, full of wisdom and the knowledge of the glory of God because you've walked faithfully with Him for years? Are you anxious to be that one day? Are you more anxious about relationship status? Are you more anxious about who's pleased with you rather than how to please the Lord who you've come to love? Now, it's, it's certainly not a sin to concern yourself with pleasing your spouse. So if you're going to take this verse and you're going to be like, all right, that's it. No dishes for me this week. <laughs> right? That's certainly not what's happening here, right? I mean, even in, within the chapter, earlier in the chapter, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 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 chapter 7, verse 3, he's, he's urged them to literally, uh, spouses, to give themselves to one another. Paul says in Ephesians 5, uh, husbands should love their wives as Christ gave himself for the church. So there's a way to do that in line with your devotion to the Lord, and there's a way to do that that's at odds with your devotion to the Lord. So married couples, right? There's a warning here for married couples in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, Your marriage is important to God, right? Your children are important. But, But you serve them and you love them in your worship of God. You don't worship them and then take breaks to serve God every once in a while. Beware that even good things like your own children can divide your devotion from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean abandon them, that doesn't mean not love them, but you do so in service to God. Now, to the singles in the room, I mean there's a lot to be had here, said here about contentment, about what's really important in the life, but But there's also something here for you that's very practical. To the singles in the room, you need to understand that your singleness is not a burden to be escaped. I mean, Paul is very positive about singleness here. This is not a burden to be escaped. He presents it as an opportunity to be stewarded. Whether that's for the rest of your life or for the rest of this year, you have a unique opportunity to give yourself wholly to the Lord without consideration of how it impacts a spouse or a family that relies upon you. And this, is, and this is just practical. This is just true. Paul is just recognizing that God is uniquely glorified through marriage and uniquely glorified through raising children. But to the single in the room, he's saying God is uniquely glorified through you too. Like you have an opportunity to steward this kind of life for the glory of God to all the nations in a way that's different than the married couples with whole families do. I mean, I I feel this this week. There's a deeper, more real fear that I experience when I go overseas now because of what it would mean to my family if something were to happen to me. If I were standing in the, the midst of the Peruvian jungle and were thrust into a situation with a hostile tribe and had the opportunity to present the gospel at risk of my own life or keep quiet and escape the thing that would cause me to keep quiet and escape is because I deeply love my wife and children. I'd be fearful of what would happen to them without me, right? Now, is that tendency wrong or sinful? Absolutely not. It's, it's, it's God's given me. It's a love for them. But do you see what the, the single person does not have in that moment? They're they they are freed to, to, to think entirely of, man, I can give my life for the Lord's cause right now and see his glory through my life. There's a, there's a deeper sense of sacrifice and difficulty even just leaving the country for eight days. Singleness has very real difficulties, don't get me wrong, but the Apostle Paul is telling singles in the room this morning, despite the difficulties of your singleness, you're a gift to the church to be leveraged for the mission of God. It's an opportunity to be stewarded, not a season to be escaped as fast as possible at all cost. And many singles are tempted to waste that season of their life because they just spend it trying to get out of it rather than using it for the glory of God. Now, Paul says again, listen, not a sin to get married. (laughs) In fact, he says if you burn with passion, the opportunity is there. Get married. It's not sin. It could be great. It is a sin to have sex outside of marriage. (laughs) So, so, so get married if the opportunity presents itself, and, and it's better to be holy and married than unholy and not married. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36, he just continues to reiterate this fact. Look at verse 36. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It's no sin, but whoever's firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. In other words, to not get married to her. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. He who refrains from his marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. And the only caveat here is only in the Lord. Small commercial, marry a Christian. Right? But the, the Bible, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Christian young person, if you're looking for someone to marry, the criteria is Christian. It's very difficult to be married to someone who does not worship the same God as you, all right? Now, we've already talked about it. We did whole sermons on that the past couple of weeks. Stay married to them. If they're not Christians, lead them to Christ, all those types of things. But here he's saying, hey, it's a good idea on the front end to just marry them in the Lord, right? And then he says, yet in my judgment, verse 40, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. The point is, regardless of the relationship status, pursue an eternal perspective. Give undivided devotion to the Lord, right? Now, now I do want to make one more point before we close, and... Uh, and it, it's, it's, it's kind of more of an assumption of Paul's worldview for him to be able to say things like this. Um, for Paul to, to take this kind of position, he has to assume one big truth. And this is our last truth, truth number three. Gospel promises are better than worldly pursuits. I mean, he just has to assume. I mean, our, our culture particularly, right, we idolize and fantasize love stories, And I know this because I know how many Hallmark movies get played around Christmas time in my house. But there's like an enjoyment of it, right? The love story. But there's an undercurrent narrative that says in order for you to live the truly human fulfilled life, a worthwhile life, you need to make a certain amount of money, have a certain kind of marriage and a certain kind of family, live in a certain kind of house, and may it all be a a beautiful love story, between a city girl and a man wearing flannel in the country, right? There's a narrative built into our culture that says you have to have this to feel love, to find true happiness. And here the Apostle Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, is saying you can forego all of that (laughs) and live an eternally worthwhile life you don't need any of that to live for the most important thing in all of the universe. I mean Paul is simply working out the implications of Jesus's teaching in Matthew 13:44 that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The invitation of Jesus Christ is an invitation to come and die to all the things the world says are most important, but will leave you still thirsty for more. And it's an invitation to come and live in the fullness of joy as you lay down your life for what will be an eternal spring of living water welling up inside of you forever and ever and ever. This is the promise of the gospel No matter how much you sinned against the holy God, he loves you and sent his son to pay the penalty for your sin. And all you have to do is believe in him and what you will find is a spring that never goes dry. What you'll find is is the joy your soul longs for. This, This is the message that all people in all the world need most. Our mission in life is to get this message That true life, eternal life, and abundant life is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And so what we do with our life, what will matter in eternity, are the people that we bring this message to, they respond to it, and they'll be there with us in eternity. You know, when you think about your life, your whole life, I just want you to think about standing around the throne of heaven, And beholding God. And then part of the fuel of your worship is looking around and seeing other people who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ because you didn't waste your life running after all the other things that were burnt up. That's what I want to live my life for. That's what gripped me when I was a teenager. I want to look back at my 20s And say, I didn't waste that junk on what everybody else said I should have been doing in my 20s. I don't want to waste my 30s wasting it with what everybody else said I should have been doing in my 30s. And you know what? I don't want to waste my 70s doing what everybody said I should have been doing with my retirement. Right? I want to spend it in such a way that on the day before my my Father in Heaven, I present to Him not only a life that I, I devoted to Him, but I say, look at Look at this person that I present to you and this person that I present to you that, 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 that they heard the gospel from my lips and you included me in on that. I want that to fuel my eternal worship. Just be one little aspect of the glorious things that I get to rejoice in forever and ever. We have an invitation to an undivided devotion to something that is eternally worth it. Let's pray together. Father, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we do not look to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, would you help us to apply The primary message of 1 Corinthians 7 to our hearts, would you secure in us an undivided devotion to the Lord that we might not waste our lives seeking and pursuing things that are not ultimate, that are not eternal. Help us to worship now, Father, in response to your holy word, by your grace and for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.